We've seen what death and dying do to the human body, and we've investigated the afterlife thanks to Mary Roach. We've gone to space and to war with her. We've learned more than a little about taste in our digestive tracts and, well, bonking. All thanks to Mary and her very, very funny books. Her seventh book, Fuzz, When Nature Breaks the Law, has just landed. And as with all of her earlier books, we're pretty sure, like us, you're going to feel smarter after you've read it. Mary, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over. Oh, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you so much, Mila. I have a question, though, and it's kind of a big one to start with, but you never planned on being a science writer. So six bestsellers with a seventh on the, I mean, let's assume Fuzz is going to be a bestseller. We know it's going to be a bestseller. How did we get here? Oh, it's such a random path. I graduated with a liberal arts degree in the middle of a recession. What could I do? Well, you know, writing, writing. I could string a sentence together. I had done that. So I started out doing sort of general interest magazine writing, and then out of the blue, ended up writing for a magazine called Hippocrates, and they they covered health and medicine, and they were really kind of interesting, and they had a budget for travel. I'm like, sign me up. And I wrote for them for a long time, and that led to someone from Discover Magazine saying, hey, would you like to write for us? So completely passive about my career, (laughs) did not aim myself in the direction of science or health or the human body or medicine, any of that, but ended up on that path and found it all really fascinating. Those stories that I did back then were among the most interesting I had done. And, and so kept up with it. And, and here I am. So in Fuzz, which has a really great subtitle, When Nature Breaks the Law... <laughs> In Fuzz, you go to India, the Himalayas, Vatican City, Colorado, Northern California, New Zealand, Canada, and Midway Atoll in the Pacific. So how many miles did you rack up while you were reporting this book? Well, I'd love to say that I actually was on Midway Atoll, oh, but that okay. one was that one was a, more of a historical chapter, though I did try to get to Midway. And they're like, there's one flight a year and it's for hardcore bird watchers who are doing a bird count, you cannot go. Sorry. So I tried to get, it's now a wildlife refuge. Ironically enough, as you'll see if you read that chapter. Anyway, I racked up, gosh, I think I had to go because of the timing of the uh, uh, Vatican City was an Easter thing. I had to be there at Easter. And the thing I was doing in New Zealand was right around that time. So I had to fly from New Zealand to Rome. And I'm telling you, there's no direct flight. I think I went, uh, uh, it was anyway, lots of miles. <laughs> I don't know the exact amount, but I typically travel for my books at least 10 trips. I would say 10 to 12 trips. Uh, a couple of them are pretty far overseas. I mean, in this case, New Zealand, India, Italy with a big jaunt. How long does it take you to research a book like this? A couple of years and part of that is that I can't tell the researchers when to do what they're doing. So I'm beholden to their schedule. So I'm often waiting for somebody. They may get a delay in funding or, oh, we're not doing anything over the summer. We'll pick it up again next year. So things kind of get spread out for that reason. And I also discover things along the way that I didn't know about that I want to report on. So things are getting dropped and added. So it's a, it's a long, drawn out. It shouldn't take me that long. (laughs) It really shouldn't, but it does. It takes me at least a couple of years to get all of the trips and all of the research done and write it. I'm always writing and researching as I go along. I may write a chapter, even though I don't know where it will go in the narrative. 
I've had over the years to kind of adapt to that anxiety of, I don't know where this is going to go, but I think I'll use it. And I have to rewrite the end of another chapter to set up the next chapter. So it's a constantly evolving and messy organism that I'm creating. So this episode of Port Over is going to air just as the book is coming out. Would you set up Fuzz for listeners, please? Of course. Fuzz is a book about people and animals, wild animals, that is, uh, getting in each other's worlds, getting in each other's way, and what's the best thing to do about it. It's kind of a book about wildlife crime prevention, because as with human crimes, prevention is better than punishment. So we're talking about the first half of the book is uh, your felony crimes, murder, manslaughter, home invasion, breaking and entering. So these chapters, bears feature prominently there, other animals in India also. And then the second half is more Oh, uh, your misdemeanors. Uh, you've got jaywalking, vandalism, trespassing, littering. So all these things that animals are doing, they don't know that we have laws. And of course, they don't. They're just animals being animals, but they end up doing these things that bug the heck out of humans and or harm them. So there have to be things we do to uh, try to make the situation better. It's a little bit of a departure from your earlier books. How did this book start for you? I wish I had a terrific and tidy origin story because I get obviously I get asked this fairly often. I started out looking at wildlife crime, but but uh, with the wildlife as the, the victims, not the perpetrators. I got interested in the forensics of things like poaching and illegal trafficking in animal parts, and it it all started with a paper by Bonnie Yates called "How to Tell Real from Counterfeit Tiger Penis." Tiger penis being one of those items that is illegally obtained and sold in this case as a virility treatment. So I was like, wow, somebody wrote a whole paper on how to tell real versus fake tiger penis. So I talked to this woman, Bonnie Yates. I ended up going to the lab, which is up in Oregon. It's a, a national, it's a, a national wildlife laboratory. And it was very interesting. I now can, I, I, I too can identify real versus fake tiger penis. But the problem there was that for legal purposes, I could not tag along with investigators on an open case. I can't. Just flat, hard stop, not possible. So back to the drawing board, I thought about agricultural crime, just uh, you know, mildly interesting. There's things like grand theft avocado, which actually happens before the Super Bowl when people <laughs> are buying large amounts of avocados for guacamole. Um, but that was also, that was a bit of a dead end. The sheriffs do that and they're like, not, they didn't want to play with me. So, um, eventually I thought, well, what if we turn it, turn it inside out in the wildlife of the perpetrators and we are the victims. That's where I landed. So one of those, I'm looking for a book. I'm just kind of picking up every rock and asking every person and, and changing my mind every other day. So that's kind of when I'm in that mode, that, that's how these things come about. It's it's not really you know, my entire life. I've been curious about this and passionate. <laughs> I wish I had one of those things that my entire life I've been curious about and passionate about, but I don't. So anyway, that's the very, very long-winded story of how this book came about. So you follow the story. Mm, yeah. Where, wherever it takes you, you just follow the story. Yeah, yeah, I, I uh, yeah. Um, I do, uh, I have a lot of false starts, right? And my agent is very patient. I'll go, what about this? And I'll go, yeah, maybe, I don't know. Keep, keep, keep looking, keep going. <laughs> keep going. 
uh, yeah. So in the past, you have eaten caffeinated beef. You have been on what is affectionately known as the vomit comet, which is the zero gravity parabola flight. You have been on a submarine. And in this book, you set yourself up to be mugged by monkeys. I did indeed. I did. Why? <laughs> Same reason I tried the, the caffeinated beef, I suppose. Uh, because I wanted to get at the reality of the experience. Because you can read about, I mean, I mean this was, as a little bit of background, this was uh, India. Uh, and that some of the northern India cities, Delhi, Agra, uh, and, and also in Jaipur, the macaques are pretty well organized and aggressive. And they do, they will grab stuff from your hand and kind of ransom it, like if they grab your cell phone and you hand out a treat, they'll drop the cell phone and take the, the treat. Anyway, they're, they're pretty impressive. The media, uh, there's a lot of monkey menace hype. I mean, they have headlines like monkeys marching in armies from here to there, you know, just, just uh, um, quite alarming news stories. And it's a little hard to know the reality behind them. And I wanted to get a sense of, you know, what is that like to be attacked <laughs> by monkeys? So, uh, I was in this town, uh, small city, Bundi, and I knew that there were up on the hill where the ruins are, where up tourists trek. Uh, I knew that there were monkeys up there. You could actually see them on the parapets of this fort up there. Uh, you could see them at dusk, sort of silhouetted, running around. So early one morning when the monkeys are out, they're usually dawn and dusk, very more active. I headed out with my friend who had met me there to travel with a bag of bananas and so I was asking for it. You know, it's the same. It's a crime of opportunity. It's like leaving your backpack in the backseat of a car perfectly visible in a city or in some cities, my city. So uh, that's what I did. And uh, it was pretty interesting. People can read about it in the chapter. That's why I did it. <laughs> that is why I did it. The same reason, yeah, you know, the, the, in Bonk, the ultrasound uh, caper with my husband. These aren't things that I'm like otherwise dying to do, but I just thought for the reader and also for myself as the writer, these things are very fun to write up. These scenes, these personal scenes are very uh, entertaining for me to, to put down on paper. Paper, ha, huh? computer. Yeah. <laughs> but you're also learning to track animals. You're out in Northern California with a mountain lion expert who teaches yes. you to track. And now you, can track animals. Yeah, not well at all, though. Uh, <laughs> I because we were we were up in a national forest in Modoc, California, and I didn't know this, but um, in national forests, people can graze their cattle for free. So I can definitely tell you what a cow track. <laughs> I can tell a cow from a, 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 a cougar from a coyote. You know, dog and cat. I can go. I got them down with that. Uh, the cow, uh, the there was a um, badger, also very distinctive, long claws, weird tracks. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I got a few. I can do, but the thing is, it's it's really really hard to do because you need some sort of substrate. Mud or snow works well, but on a on a gravel road, and fortunately, animals like to take roads as much as we do because the going is easier. Uh, it, it can be really tough 
to come upon a whole track. You might get a partial track. You might get something that to anybody other than the guy I was with is invisible. You know, you go early in the morning when the sun is hitting the ground sideways, so sort of casting shadows and putting the foot, the, the track in, in, in relief. It's, uh, it's not easy. And it's a skill that I have uh, mastered in a very, very, very rudimentary way. <laughs> but it's fascinating. It's not just, it's not just the tracks. It's kind of th- things like there's a, something that cougars do called a scrape, where they scrape the, it's called the duff, which is pine needles and stuff on the forest floor. And that leaves their scent there. And it's kind of a scent marking, but you can see that under large trees, they tend to do it. You can see how old it is by how many pine needles have fallen on top of the scrape. I mean, it's like reading another language. It's a really fascinating and pretty rare skill. You talk to a lot of experts in this book, and one of them is the PhD who's leading the Mountain Lion Institute that you're at, learning how to track and spending time on an ATV while he's tracking and thinking, I'm I'm okay, I'm going to hang out here while he's looking. But it seems like we're in a moment where expertise doesn't quite carry the weight it used to. Yeah, a number of things seem to be happening. We're kind of in that mode of everybody isn't expert is one thing that's going on. You know, citizen science is is great and people do contribute in a meaningful way. But, you know, this sense that everybody who weighs in is an expert, I guess, is, is part of it. And then the science skeptics and deniers, that's another uh, very disheartening development that I struggle with. And I don't know entirely where that came from. I understand how it's perpetuated and how it has spread. People don't trust the government. And when you don't trust an entity like the government, which is powerful and which can manipulate us in ways we don't know, when the government has lost our trust, there's a tendency to distrust everything that they say. And I think with science and with health as well, that people have felt betrayed. Like, I thought there'd be a cure. I thought there'd be something that would help me. It's not helping me or the findings were portrayed in a way that wasn't straightforward. I, mean, I guess people have come to feel that they can't trust Western medicine sometimes because there's such a focus on when things do go wrong and there are lawsuits, whether it's a drug or a device, there's a sense of betrayal and a lack of trust, I guess. And, and again, all of this is amplified by social media and you are in a bit of an echo chamber. So if that's the narrative, you hear that again and again and again. So now we're in a very frightening place where the truth doesn't seem to matter anymore. People are choosing their truth. And I'm putting quotation marks around yeah. truth. People are choosing their facts. It's become a matter of choice, like choosing your political party. But choosing your facts too. I'm going to go back to your bear chapter for a second. You're in Aspen, Colorado. Bears and garbage are an issue. Bears are breaking into people's houses in fact, looking for food. But simple fact, bears fight like bears. And you have an expert in the book who says, oh no, a bear will bite, 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 bite. They will go for your face. And there are all sorts of different pieces of information about what to do if you encounter a bear. And my personal plan is to never encounter (laughs) a bear. I'm a city person. Squirrels, rats, okay, pigeons, but bears, I would like to have them not be part of my reality. A bear fights a certain way. A bear has responses and instincts that it follows. Those are simple facts. 
a bear is bigger than a person. A bear is likely to create a situation where the person is not going to be successful if they take on a bear. Right, right. But keep in mind, for all of the tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of encounters that people have with bears, whether it's in their backyard, their kitchen, on their campsite, or hiking, of all of those, every year in the United States, we have between one and three fatal attacks. Mm -hmm. And when they happen, yes, they're messy and very gory and very disturbing, but they're so, so rare that we now have these two competing narratives, one being absolute (laughs) terror because you you know, you've heard about what happens and you just are scared to death. Or particularly if you live in bear country and you see bears all the time and they're kind of wandering around. And for the most part, they are not aggressive. They're not coming at you. Bears don't attack. It's crimes of opportunity. You've got food somewhere, your kitchen, your car, uh, your tent, and the bear smells it and the bear goes after it. Particularly if you've got a dog with you, maybe, and the dog and the bear kind of get involved and you get caught in the middle, that's bad. So it's, we're not on the menu. They're not attacking to kill and eat us. That's so, so rare. You mentioned that Aspen has the resources to address this in a better way. But one of the guys you talked to in Aspen, he's saying, well, the town planted decorative crab apples. They're putting food right in front of the bears. So of course the bears are going to wander down here. It seems to me that as humans, we're still making not great decisions. Yeah, Yeah, I would agree with that. Yes. And sometimes decisions are made, okay, we will require people to have bear resistant dumpsters, compost containers, and trash containers. And that's a great start. But you then have to enforce those rules and find people when they don't follow them. And first you've got to figure out, okay, we have a dumpster that's used by three restaurants here. Who left it unlatched? Or we've got a condo development with with 10 condos here. Somebody left the the trash container unlocked and a bear got in and now we have a problem. Who left it open? I don't know. So the system falls apart in ways that are tough to anticipate. And, And in place like Aspen, which is a resort, it's a ski resort, mountain bikes, whatever people are going there. Uh, on vacation rentals, a lot of these houses are uh, rented out to people who don't know what to do around bears and who don't realize how important it is to keep the bears out of the human areas so they don't become habituated to humans and food and and um, eventually be perceived as a public threat, and then they're destroyed. So you've got people coming in for a weekend. They don't know. They forgot. They didn't read the instructions. So the reality of doing it right is tougher than you might think. Well, and you say in the book too, that French door handles are actually called bear handles out in Aspen because bears have figured out how to open them up and go into the house. And translocation, taking the bear from Aspen and taking it back into the wild and letting it live its bear life out there doesn't actually work because bears will go back to where they want to be. You even talk about a bear that swam six miles in the ocean as part of its journey back. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable how far... I think the record was like 160 miles or something, including the swim. The translocation, it's tough in that, A, they can sometimes make their way back. But the other thing going on is when you translocate a bear, a problem bear, a bear that has a record of, say, breaking into homes to go after garbage, to go after human food, and you drop it in some other forested area, um, that forested area is probably not too far from another populated, as in human populated area, and these bears uh, tend to get in trouble into the place that you've dropped them off. 
these are habits they've learned and they apply them in the new location. Um, so and that's concern for the person, the entity, the agency that translocated them because now they have some liability if that bear harms somebody in the place that they put it or near the place that they put it, then they can be responsible. And liability, as we know, is a significant hurdle for an agency. We see that with elephants in India. We see that with leopards in India. We see that with albatross on Midway Atoll. I guess it's a nature station now, but it really wasn't anything for a while, yet the Navy was trying to move albatross. Oh, it wasn't. Midway was a strategic spot for the military because it's midway you know it's in between the u.s and asia and it was considered a an opportune place to have a navy base for for flights leaving refueling whatever it is it happens to be a large seabird colony there are tremendous number of albatross that call it home and the albatross is a large bird and it's also a kind of an unflappable bird you know it kind of treated the navy's planes as this big lumbering other bird and it didn't really seem to bother it you know they were nesting right there near the tarmac and they would not leave the navy tried to scare them off using bazookas and mortars and burning tires and sonar and uh, pretty much everything the military had at its disposal at that time short of a bomb because this is of course their property they don't want to destroy it and they did at one point try flying the albatross to neighboring islands. Albatross have an almost GPS-like ability to head right back to their nesting site. And that is what they did. They went right back. So it's been referred to as the second battle for Midway Island. <laughs> the albatross won. They are still there. The Navy is gone. And uh, it's now a wildlife sanctuary. What was your biggest challenge writing Fuzz? Um... My challenge is always with all of my books to find enough things going on, scenes, research underway, people that I can tag along with. And that was a little tricky with this one. I like my books to be entertaining and fun and funny. And that's a priority for me. Sometimes the subject matter is a little difficult to reconcile. But there, I mean, there's always a way to, to make things fun without being disrespectful, but sometimes it's harder than others. There are people whose job is to, to test traps and poison to see how how quickly they render the creature unconscious. And that's a really tough job saying, all right, that means testing these things. And I have, you know, I have a chapter on that. And, and that was a, to make that a fun chapter, <laughs> a little bit of a challenge. Do you have a favorite story or favorite moment in Fuzz? Oh, I have a lot of them. One of them is the scene in, in Delhi, with the, the South Delhi Municipal Corporation, which is kind of the bureaucratic core of New Delhi. And I am sitting down with the man who is supposedly in charge of the monkey menace. And he spends the entire time trying to make the point that monkeys are wild animals. I deal with, with stray dogs. This is not my job. You need to speak to Dr. Ishwar Singh in the forest department. Have you met him? Here is his cell phone number. Like everything I'd ask, he'd go, that is the purview of Dr. Ishwar Singh, Forest Department, New Delhi. Have you spoken with him? I just kept, you know, I kept trying to get to a question that this guy would answer without referring me to Dr. Ishwar Singh. Uh, and then I finally do track down Dr. Ishwar Singh, and that is similarly <laughs> maddening. <laughs> so, so there was some of the 
the most fun moments for me were the individuals, the people that I encountered. I mean, the animal, the moments were memorable uh, also. I mean, my stumbling onto the bears in the back alley in Aspen at 3 a.m. was a thrill for me, you know, not so much for them. Like, I like, oh, yeah, whatever. Leave me alone. I've got my bag of food scraps from Il Fiore. I'm enjoying my sustainably harvested salmon here. <laughs> the Vatican was fun too. The, the gulls of Vatican City was also a, a fun a fun experience and a fun thing to write up. I know when you're writing one of your books, you're always just looking for the pieces of the story and you like to be surprised, but what surprised you in Fuzz? What surprised me, I'll tell you, uh, the number of people killed by elephants in India, 500 a year. I mean, India has a huge population. Let's keep that in mind. But 500 people, as opposed to here in the United States where, okay, mountain lions, maybe a decade may go by where no one is killed by a mountain lion. Bears, two or three a year. 500 people. And elephants, which I, as a kid, my favorite animal was the elephant. I knew them from Babar. I knew them from Dumbo. I knew them from National Geographic. I, I didn't have any sense that anybody had died at the, I was going to say at the hands, at the trunk slash feet of an elephant. So yeah, I would, I would say that was, that was my biggest surprise. I didn't know elephants like to get their drink on. Elephants like to get their drink on. They do. They do. And uh, they can be pretty aggressive about getting to the hooch. I mean, it's often, it's a homebrew called Haria, H-A-A-R-I-A. It's a fermented booze like most homebrew. And, and, and to keep the elephants from tippling, sometimes people drag the container into their home or shop. And that's a really bad idea because it's pretty easy for an elephant to knock down the wall of some of these structures to get at the hooch, uh, which they do. And the results can, can be fatal. There, someone you know, wakes up in the middle of the night. These things tend to happen at night and they wake up. There's an elephant in the room, <laughs> so to speak. And uh, they try to get the elephant out of there. An elephant is a big animal. It's very easy to get crushed, stepped on, uh, pushed into a wall. Uh, That is, um, so anyway, yeah, they do. They like to drink. They tend to, when elephants get drunk, they, as with humans, uh, some of them are an aggressive drunk, but more often they just kind of wander off, lie down, sleep it off. Sometimes they sort of sway and wrap their trunk around themselves. (laughs) They have a Someone wrote a paper. Someone has written a paper on everything. There is a paper on um, uh, the behavior of inebriated elephants and how much alcohol it takes. It doesn't take as much as you would think for an animal that big. They, I th- one report said they don't have the enzyme that breaks down the alcohol. I assume that that's true. I mean, it's, that's what some paper said. So yeah, elephants, they do enjoy, they do enjoy a snort. Um, something else I didn't know either is that bears can give birth while they're hibernating. Black bears? Bears? Yeah, when bears hibernate, this was also a surprise to me because um, I don't, when I start a book, really don't know anything at all about the subject matter. Uh, bears, yeah, uh, when bears hibernate, I just assume that bears are asleep the entire time they're hibernating, but they're they're in a very dialed down state. They're, uh, but they're not asleep. They They give birth and they nurse. They may eat the placenta. They are, they are in a semi-aware state, which was very surprising to me. Yeah, I was one of those people who thought bears just slept for however many months. It never occurred to me that yeah, other I things had, could be happening. Yeah, yeah. I had a lot of questions when, 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 I, when I learned that. I was like, well, so here in the den, first of all, you know, it's kind of amazing that you don't need to feed. And then 
you know, this person mentioned, well, they do, you know, they do eat the placenta and the cubs are actually urinating and defecating. And I was like, well, well, okay. The, the adult bear, do they have to like leave the den to take a crap? Or are they just letting it go in there? What does it smell like in there? Oh my God. And this guy's like, well, you know, cause, and then there's researchers who go in and, and they'll like, they'll do work with hibernating bears sort of and the bears are and you there i have videos that someone sent me of the bear kind of like looking over and kind of like oh checking the person out kind of maybe like seeing them but not really responding in a way that you would think to, that a bear would respond if you know you stuck your head in its den and it's just really interesting but anyway he said that the dens kind of smell earthy and woody and they that's it they don't they don't stink you'd think it would be sleep breath shit just ugh. <laughs> but no <laughs> bears are amazing and mouse bait tastes like suntan lotion, according to you. You tasted mouse bait. Well, and the scientist you were with yeah. was a little surprised. <laughs> well, it, it smelled so good. It's a bait, a specific bait for this one kind of trap. And it smells sort of coconutty and chocolatey. And it looks doesn't look bad. It's just bait. There wasn't poison in it. And so I, I tried it. <laughs> it's like, you just tried that? Do you want some chewing gum? Because <laughs> I, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't taste good. I can tell you that. But that does lead into a chapter about how we define pests. And you do have an addenda at the end of the book where you talk about resources for homeowners is what you call it, which is pretty terrific. Can we just take a second and talk about defining pests and what that means? And you also hint at a sort of changed perspective that you have now after writing this book and specifically regarding mice. Sure. The term nuisance or pest, I don't care for it because it puts the animals completely in the context of human existence. And I don't think that that's entirely fair. I understand people need to classify these animals that either break into our homes to nest or to feed typically is what they're doing. But I also feel that that gives us some permission to just call an exterminator or call a wildlife control operator who's going to trap them and you know do something that isn't humane. I think it gives us permission to behave in a kind of automatic way. Oh, got to get rid of that. When in fact, there's things that can be done. And you mentioned the the appendix and that's uh, resources, the Humane Society of the United States and PETA also on their websites have, have really good species by species suggestions for what to do to prevent the conflict. In other words, how to keep rodents out of your attic, how to keep them out of your backyard, how to keep your chickens safe from fox or a coyote. They're things that you can do to prevent the problem. And that should be the starting point. While I was writing this book, there was a day where I was sitting on the deck and a rat, a roof rat, not a city sewer rat, but a roof rat. It was actually pretty cute. They look like squirrels, but they have the naked tail. And But I saw it and I thought rat and the word rat made me think, we've got to go right now to the hardware store, get a snap trap. It's a rat. I went for a hike with a friend of mine who also lives in the, I mean, where there are trees there in Oakland, where I live, there are often roof rats around, particularly if you have fruit trees and things that attract them. And she said, well, is that a problem? Like, so what? So what? A rat ran across your deck. And uh, I thought, oh yeah, okay, so what? And then of course, fast forward a week or so and we could hear something in the wall. So even then I was like, well, there are things we can do. We can find where it's getting in. You can put a wildlife camera out, sort of figure out where, where is this creature getting in and then block that hole. There's uh, much nicer things to do than setting a trap or calling someone else to do that for you. So it's more of just, just think about it. 
think about think about a a better way to deal with that. You have a really distinctive voice on the page, which I'm not the only reader who appreciates it. And you talked about it earlier. You are using a lot of humor, and sometimes you're talking about really tough subjects. But at the same time, I can't help but laugh when I'm reading one of your books. Who are some of the writers or the books that have influenced you over time as you've been sort of developing your ear for story? When I first started writing feature stories and books, the two writers that I found inspiring were Susan Orlean and Bill Bryson. And, and they still inspire me because they're nonfiction authors, but they're a delight to read, partly because they do really thorough and interesting research, but they also tell you about it in a way that is fresh, entertaining, different. Like every sentence they write earns its keep. If they're not making you laugh, they're making you marvel at their turn of phrase. The fact that they've discovered this person who's just a wonderful character, not, not made up. But they've kept going till they've found a situation and a person that is worthy of this kind of treatment. A lot of what I tell writers, they focus on the writing. They want to be writers. They focus on the writing. And I always say the, the, the most important thing for me uh, is the research. Because if I haven't found the person in the setting and in the, the scene that's interesting or entertaining or funny, the writing is going to be flat. Good writing for me completely depends on how good is the stuff I found the people, the conversations, the things that happen. Sometimes it may be only two minutes of a trip that's three days, but that will make a scene that will be memorable and fun. So those two writers I looked to, not in like I want to imitate them per se, but I think by osmosis, just reading writers like that inspires me literally. Like I think, okay, on my best day, reaching as high as I can, I can touch the hem <laughs> of one of these two writers. And that's inspiring because it's not totally out of reach. Like literary fiction, I read that and I think that's just a, another species altogether. I could never, I don't know how they do that. It doesn't inspire me just because I know it's not, it's not my thing. But a, a, a really good nonfiction writer like one of those two, Sarah Vowell also, uh, that just wow. memorable voice and ability to create scene and character and dialogue, not create, not make it up, but work hard enough to find the reality that's going to sparkle on the page. Yeah. I'm not the only reader who's followed you pretty much everywhere. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> What's next for you? What are you working on? Can you even talk about what you're working on next? It's pretty early. My editor hasn't seen it yet, but it's, it's another book. <laughs> well, if, if I do do this book, Going back to more familiar terrain in that it has to do with the human body, but it's not as straightforward. It's not like the brain or hair. Or it's, not, it's not one of those. Uh, so you'll see. Okay. That's excellent. I can't wait. Mary Roach, the new book is Fuzz, When Nature Breaks the Law. It's out now. We're so delighted to see you and cannot wait to see this book become another bestseller. Thank you so much, Miwa. It was such a joy speaking with you. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.